Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Faithful listeners, you are checking in on another mad romp with the film board from the next reel on rashpixel.fm. A gang of thugs has gathered here to jump right into a new movie freshly released in theaters and then expose all of its scaly and beautiful underparts so that it's spoiled thoroughly for you. This month may have equal parts scaly and beautiful as we rocket into science fiction future space with Luc Besson's Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. The thugs out there in space, ready to attach their satellite to this satellite to create the film board's critical mass, are here. Say hello to Steve Sarmento. I just flew in from Big Market, and boy, are my interdimensional hands tired. How about you, Pete Wright? Mawahialo. Am I close? It's new. It's one of the sectors 
on Alpha. And my name is JJ, and I don't have a, a clever language uh, to write just yet. But uh, we will shoot off into the deepest reaches of the universe in just a second or two. As we do, make sure you check out all the fun stuff about this show and its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to The Next Reel with your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. We're posting clever content that we find or create about the movie industry. And if you're with us out there, you can see what new films we're talking about each and every week. Since you're with us here, consider joining with us on our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar a month, you could become a patron of the show. It helps us make sure the goodness keeps growing and can set you up with some fun patron perks too. Uh, we keep the conversations flowing with access to our team's Slack channels. You can get early access to shows from our drafts feeds and some other special quirky fun benefits to experience our thug love. That page is found at www.patreon, which is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash The Next Reel. And it's like a special clubhouse for filmophiles like us. So with that, let's drop out of exospace and spend some time exploring this massive space mutant. Initial thoughts on Valerian. Pete, go. You know, uh, I, I'm i a fan of Besson for the most part. I hated Lucy real hard. Uh, but uh, sure. largely, I have found something to like, if not love, about uh, almost every thing that he has done. And so, uh, you know, I went into this as a big fan of The Fifth Element. I, I really enjoyed that. It is the closest comparison that I have to this film, his return to space. It was not, for me, a Fifth Element. I missed the, the you know, the, the craziness of more of the characters. It, was, it, it <laughs> weirdly felt more subdued than The Fifth Element. Uh, I miss Ruby Rod. Honestly, I miss the, you know, I, yeah. I miss those. I miss the, 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 uh, you know, what was the, the, uh, flotsam paradise. <laughs> I miss that. I do. Uh, but the world building and the flamboyant use of color and, and the general optimism of the universe that Luc Besson creates, I think is, is something that wins me over in spite of what is otherwise some, some pretty tragic dialogue. Um, you know, there were also some things that I've never seen in this film. The big market sequence in, in another dimension, that was really cool and something that I'm going to be thinking about for a while. I thought that was really neat. And then you have the the little sci-fi tropes like the the spider laser cutter rebreather just in time for that one event that amazingly specialized tool as a defense from an alien weapon you know it was a it was a huh kind of a moment but uh, overall i i found myself entertained i was i was entertained well that's that's good and i and i guess question i want to ask questions about the specific things you found because i think in applying it to how we evaluate this movie it'll be interesting to see what we think is is based here versus what we think is based from the original source material steve how about you were you entertained i i was entertained i you know for me this was really like a spiritual sequel to the fifth element and one thing that i was really sort of delighted to see was so as we're seeing some of the aliens, you know, being introduced, there were the ones that were in the big sort of like golden armor that sort of looked like they were somehow related to those guardians from the fifth element, which sort of gave me the sense that we're, we're back in that universe where we're seeing some, you know, relationship to those things. And it just was a lot of fun. I haven't read the graphic novels, but I think one of the things that I noted watching this was I felt like if I go back on a second viewing or a third viewing, I can sort of see the relationship to the graphic novel source material of this is this, you know, 
section of the graphic novel, this chapter or this volume, because there are these very defined sequences where we have different excursions or adventures. And to me, it sort of diverged from sort of a traditional three-act structure because we had these different sequences, which felt very like these self-contained episodes. And I think that contributed to maybe some pacing problems, but overall, this was just a fun ride from beginning to end for me. I I just sat back and let it wash over me and, and had a, a good time. Yes, there are, are some flaws, but overall, it's something that I really enjoyed experiencing. Gotcha. And I think I think that's good that you mentioned the parts of the graphic novel and how it differs from the 3X structure because, I mean, in the advertising for this film, they talked a lot about how this is a lifetime in the making. It's a, it's a source material that defined a generation. That's stuff that I wasn't aware of. I, I actually wasn't aware of the series beforehand. So I think how they executed on that, I think, is going to be important for our discussion here. You also mentioned that it was a ride. And I think for me, looking at the film... I, I didn't think it was super great. I was entertained uh, early and I was pulling for it a lot because I was really hoping for a lot from it. But it really felt like it was one of the, if I was at an amusement park and going on one of their um, the, their indoor movie thrill rides, mm-hmm. it felt like about the level of story that they approach those rides with. <laughs> You know, and then if you go to the extreme case of that, yeah. you've got uh, I saw it at a Regal Cinema here in, in Portland. Uh, and uh, you know that, you know, the roller coaster that, that they put you in to show you all the different things you can buy. And welcome to Regal Cinema. Please check pop- When that popcorn goes off, man, it sets me off. That's, That's a trigger moment. That's how I felt watching Valerian. That it, <laughs> I agree that it was a ride. And I think the ride stuff was pretty fun. But when you actually start to look at it as a film and for the, the story and, and really get into the execution i thought the movie in itself was pretty bad but that's you know the interesting thing about this sort of heavy visual effects uh, cgi thing i i was made interested in the film by the trailers i i have not seen avatar because i have a, a strange weird thing about james cameron but i get the sense that movies like this the movies that are really kind of pushing you towards that visual narrative are okay with being a great ride. And some of the sequences I thought were really, really neat rides for that. So I think it'll be interesting to see how we talk about that going forward. It, you know, the next thing we should talk about is script, but I think we're kind of skipping a little bit of the story here. Um, we should talk about the story a little bit as well. Uh, how did you guys feel about the story pieces that went in there? Uh, Pete, you mentioned a couple different pieces there. Maybe we start with the big market. It was a really cool effect. How did it fit with the story for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, as as I sort of expect with films like this, it's a giant set piece that's designed to, you know, sort of explode in your face and move you to the next giant set piece. And for that, I, I take it as what it is. And and uh, you know, I was I was wowed by it. But when you when you step back and look at at the story that they're trying to tell, it it fits in the arc. It gives us a chance to see how these two characters, Valerian and Loreline, work together, how they how they interact with one another, and see you know if the the sort of charisma that they have uh, between one another and it it get, shows off their skills and so we get to see kind of how they are able to execute a complex mission uh, and and use the team and the ship and and finally escape into exospace and it's it's all fine uh, you know it was it was a showcase of lots of lights and swirly things um, the the I actually found I, I really enjoyed uh, the the story itself right the narrative I mean it's telling the story of this this uh, species that was uh, their planet was annihilated 
as an accident, right? It was collateral damage from uh, from a, another mission, another human uh, war that was taking place in space above, and and uh, so this this the re- remaining members of the species are trying to rebuild. They're trying to to recreate their own planet, and they need uh, this one last little rodent. It is the the rodent that. Is the rodent copy machine. The rodent of all rodents. (laughs) It is the rodent of all rodents. And when you jam a pearl in its mouth, a pearl of untold energy, (laughs) the rodent spits out. It just craps out thousands of pearls just like it. It is the most incredible copy machine that you've ever seen. And this, A, feels very much like a Luc Besson story, right? This feels like the directly out of the imagination of this guy. And I found myself really attracted to that because it took me to that space of... Hey, I'm 10 years old and I'm playing in my bedroom and this is the kind of thing that I would do. Like hmm. the, the, I wonder what would happen if I jammed this this thing into the mouth of that thing, would it crap out more things? Like that is the thing that I would do. So I found myself really attracted to that. It was it, it had that sort of uh, um, youthful charisma. Interesting that I found that part of the story as well. That that part of the story with the collateral damage and the in and, and the the sort of macro story over the top. I found that very captivating. The character development part of the story I felt was lacking. And you meant, mentioned the word charisma. <laughs> I, when we get into cast, I really want to talk about the perceived charisma between the people there. Uh, it, it, Steve, in terms of story, uh, did did you talk about going away from the three-act structure? What, what about the story did work for you that wasn't traditional? Well, I think it, it's got an, an, an interesting opening sequence that for me really sets the tone. Where oh, we I thought see, that was great. You know, the, the origins science. of where Alpha comes from, that it, this is a community that's based on sort of like an international interstellar welcoming of new people. And we see that play out from 1975 up to wherever we are, 24, you know, 100 and whatnot, of just seeing this community that continues to grow and is always open to new visitors. And to me, that really set this tone of what this place is like. Then we get sort of this jarring shift to this crazy, you know, beach resort planet that is like the most peaceful place ever. And we see it destroyed. So then I wonder where, where are we going? Cause we've, we spent a lot of time without even inter, you know, being introduced to our main characters. When we finally get to them, then it sort of becomes this sort of we've we've got the big market heist scene and then it's the MacGuffin of the rodent and the pearl and who's got it and and where is it in the chase about the red zone and to me that part once we get to them that's where we kick into very episodic sequences it's first the big market heist which I loved that sequence it was just thrilling did so many innovative things the way that that was shot just visually just stunning I had a great time with that once we get to Alpha yeah we sort of fall into the now we've got our story, we've got our MacGuffin, we've got this mystery of this red zone, and then we get into lots of back and forth between Valerian and Laureline on their quest to find the missing commander, and then what's going on with the general. And there were several times where it was just the back and forth of, hey, have you found the commander yet? No, but now we've got to do this thing. Okay, well, we're going to keep trying to figure out what's going on. Great, we're going to continue on our adventure. And it just felt a little bit repetitive of, here's another sequence where they're exploring a new part of Alpha, and the general still doesn't know what's going on because he's locked out of all the information. And it, it felt a little... I felt like it stalled a little bit because 
the story wasn't really progressing. I enjoyed the excitement and adventure and visual stimulation of the different places they were exploring in Alpha, but really the story isn't really progressing because they're not getting we're not getting any new information really. It's just here's another obstacle. You know, we're going to have this new alien that we were encountering. It's a new place that we're going to explore and then we move on. And to me, that's where it strayed from the three act structure because we don't have that continual progression towards uh, like smaller victories in resolving the conflict because all they're doing is trying to find where the commander is. You know, it's not helping solve the mystery of who are these people, they're back, the pearls people. Are they good guys or bad guys? Because we know their planet was destroyed. Have they gone just like completely unhinged and they're out to destroy everyone else? What is going on? And we don't have a lot of information. It's just more of the episodic, you know, thrill of here's the next chapter of exploring Alpha. So that's where I felt like visually it was fun and I enjoyed going along with it. But story-wise is where we sort of like flatline and we've got a MacGuffin and we're just not progressing. And so to me, that's one of the weaknesses with that, that I think for a rewatch, that's why I want to see sort of how that breaks down to sort of map that out a little bit to see what's going on story-wise. Because maybe I was distracted by so much of the visual that maybe there's more information or other things that I well, can piece it's together tough too, because that's a yeah. lot like a comic book series, or right? A gra- graphic exactly. novel series, right? Yes. So, so it, it's kind of matching the nature of the original source material in this piece. But to, to say that if you are being critical of what you're seeing there, you see maybe those action sequences as kind of episodic deus ex machina to move the story along, which in, in general, I think the story, other than that sort of macro concept of the collateral damage piece, I think the, the, the story concept of in, a, in and of itself was, was somewhat weak. It's more of a vehicle to get everything here on screen. I don't know that that's a problem though. I think that's something that we, we need to talk about as well. It, as far as the comic in itself did do are, are either of you guys familiar with it i i'm i'm not familiar with it someone in our notes here says it started in 67 is that right yeah it's it ran from 67 to 2010 the, wow. the creators of the comic uh, pierre christian and jean-claude uh, Mezières, are 80 now and i i believe they're retired i'm i'm not i don't you know profess to be an expert on on the background but i know that uh besson is a huge fan of these guys and has been for a long time and he has been trying to get this film out of his head uh, and on to screen for a long time. And and he says, you know, when I approached these guys, they told me, they said, Luke, you have to get out of the bubbles of the story. You have to surprise us uh, that these guys were very much not guardians of the temple. And so, you know, I, I would suspect that this is as much a Luc Besson vision as it is uh, equal parts that of Kristen and and uh, Mizier. Well, and we talked about that first sequence, the science sequence attaching to the ISS and whatnot. I would be super curious. I'm I'm sure the three of us can't answer this question right now, but I would be super curious to see if that's some a concept that was developed in the graphic novel itself, or if that's something that Besson put up. Because I think that was really clever and well executed with Major Tom over the top. I mean, I I was I the first part of this movie, I was really excited for what we were going to see. Yeah, and, and I think that when when you get to the script, 
in, in particular dialogue, that's when, for me, it starts falling apart. Um, you know, we, we have this wonderful sequence at the beginning, and it shows a lot of heart as we and, and appreciation of history as we're building this future. And and that is one of the things that Besson is really good at, is, is world building. I think he just has a, a real knack for showing, you know, uh, attention to detail in this flamboyance of space. But, uh, you know, then then our, our leads open their mouths, and they start doing that that whole dance around, oh, my God. God, the the marry me thing. I'm done. I'm yeah. done. Don't get married. <laughs> no. Elope. I'm done. I am so done. And and it, it it's that thing, you know, it's like, God, why does this movie keep hitting itself? Every time they they open their mouths, I feel like it's a movie that is just smacking itself about the head. And so I'm I acknowledge that you know once we start talking about production design and the look of the film I'm a huge apologist for this film because it had a lot of ground to recover that it lost in straight up script and dialogue it's terrible well and i would argue and we're not really to cast yet but i would argue that not delivered particularly well too but there's not a whole lot of material there to go yeah, on that, that's so the, it's yeah. like the, the story the things that were developed in this movie were not the sort of high sort of high ground pieces about story and and dialogue it really was the time that they spent to make these effects work well, it was it was challenging of we're walking into this relationship that clearly has been going on for a while. Has we, it though? We, Did well, it feel like that to you? That that's what I'm and that I think that's the challenge of because it's not like the romantic comedy where you've got the meet cute and you've got the opportunity to fall in love with this relationship or understand what the, the source of friction is. We sort of get thrown that he's this like womanizer with this, you know, long history of his his playlist. But it seems like they you know, have clearly they've been working together for a while. I would think it seems like they're at a, and that's what I'm tr struggling with is I don't have the backstory, and we sort right. of get thrown into we it. Have and to so guess it. Yeah, so there's the witty banter that they're, they're they're trying for with them, and just we don't have the foundation. You know, number one, and secondly, I think it's the challenge of the the script and then the casting to really flesh that out and make it believable and it just fails on that because i i see what they're striving for but they're just falling so far short of that because i want to have that fun relationship this playful interplay between them that i think is a nice balance to the action but it just was not executed at that level and it just really causes all these i think problems with the film that get in it gets in the way of itself well, and and I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I really think all of the character stuff, it, it goes straight back to the script. I, I, I just, I, I feel like we have too much evidence of, um, you know, Dahan and Cara Delevingne doing, doing really solid work in other films. This is not just, I, I you know, a, a mistake casting somebody brand new that we've never seen who actually couldn't, couldn't pull their weight. Well, the, the the question I just asked was, have they been together really that long? Yeah, the next I, I got that is, totally. Though there, I, I felt like they totally were. I mean, there was there no relationship question appropriate, or is it not? <laughs> it's yeah. an HR disaster. Well, it, but but I mean, <laughs> yeah. what is the movie trying to say? Because that's the problem: is I couldn't tell whether they were breaking the rules or not. Yes. Okay. This is this gets to my first challenge with Dane DeHane, right? Yeah. That it is it is written as a conflicted character and I don't think there's much he could do with it as an actor because on the character's part you can't be the scruffy looking nerf herder and the rule-following soldier boy at the same time. No. It just yeah. doesn't work. And right. those two elements were coming headlong in contact with one another every time he was on screen. He is not a rebel 
and a soldier. Uh, he wasn't, you know, in order for him to have that that sort of Playboy thing, he'd have to come off as as Han Solo, and he was no Han Solo well, because the, he kept trying to be a soldier. And the piece there is, if he has that uh, checkered past, which he kind of explores a little bit when he they take him into the temptation of of Paradise Grove or whatever the area is called, right? They they try to bring that up, but then his what he's trying to convince us of as a character throughout the entire film is that no, he has this undying love for his. Partner. And this goes back to the same sort of conflict we had relationship dynamic wise that we explored last month in The Mummy, where it was you've got this gadabout in Tom Cruise that is all, all of a sudden falling in love with this with this straight character, right? The, this this straightforward paleontologist. And we're supposed to believe X without having to see any sort of character development to bring us to X. So, you know, whether Dane DeHane was given the, the piece to do that, that conflicted character ended up with a character mush. I mean, I thought about it. It's like they threw us into like season two of Moonlighting where there's been all this like, will they, <laughs> won't they get back together or will they, will they, won't they get together? And so what happened? Know, yeah, we don't have all that. But I, I felt like that's the backstory that was hidden from us of that they've been working together he he likes her she's got a thing for him but clearly she doesn't trust him because he's with all these ladies so there's this supposed to be this tension between them and now we're at the point where he's ready to sort of commit or make that decision possibly but we've missed out on all of that interplay before and i think that's the the you know, we spent more time with our little paradise planet getting the exposition on those people where I felt that we would have been better served to have a little bit more about these two rather than trying to condense it into the, you know, little sequence we have right there in the little hollow holodeck. I liked that sequence, actually. Uh, and that's oh, still yeah. when I was still bought into the film. It wasn't when they tried to it wasn't until they tried to marry the two stories that I lost faith uh, in either of them, unfortunately. Um, talking about Besson in particular, I have one question that that we haven't really addressed because this is a French graphic novel and because it's talked about so largely as defining a European generation and whatnot. Is this yet another case that this is something we've explored in, in earlier films this year, too, of a film that's being made for a non-American box office? I think it's got to be considered given the global market. And I guess that is the other piece. Is this cultural? Is it a cultural translation issue yeah i mean i don't i don't think you i, I don't think you spend 180 80 million dollars uh on a movie uh and and not make it for a global audience uh there were, there were an awful lot of different uh languages and fonts so well they better not because we're jumping ahead here but it's only made 16 million this week that's the thing that I worry about, right? So uh, it's a $180 million movie that uh, made for a global audience that isn't connecting with the globe. Uh, I, I, you know, whether or not we connect with it is, you know, notwithstanding, it's not connecting with its intended audience either, apparently. Yeah. Well, and, the, and and I don't know. Is it, it, it? Have we hit? I assume we've hit worldwide release. I that's I I didn't look. When did it open? Uh, worldwide. The only thing that I've seen is is American numbers, but they're but they're paltry. And that's I mean the reason why I bring up the source material in this is because I'm I'm trying to confess my ignorance and whether or not that the popularity of this source material is going to carry it with global legs because it's not going to work here with what it's up against. So Asia, Western Europe, it's all open. Uh, or, or I take that back. I take that back. No, um, this weekend. 
It opened in the rest of Asia and the USA. It opens Belgium, Finland, France. It, it doesn't even open in France until the 26th. So give, give it a chance, so right? I mean, it's most thing. of the world is is not, um, it, it hasn't seen it yet. And certainly Western Europe isn't seeing it yet. Right. And we saw so at the beginning go. that there's Asian money behind it. But beyond that, the fact that the, the legacy character, the legacy stories, the people who probably understand these characters better than we'd be able to do are going to be those French, you know, I would assume most of, most of Western Europe is going to have a, an, an affinity for these characters that we might not be able to understand. And, and you know, it won't open in the UK until August 2nd. I, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a Luc Besson thing that we just uh, that we just don't get. I I feel like it's it's pretty easy to make these comparisons to the last uh, several movies that he's made, and and this was less of a flagrant um, sort of disregard to intelligence that Lucy was. Um, <laughs> well, but, what else uh, do we need to say about Besson? I mean, this is his passion project, right? And you know, I mean, the, the Fifth Element in and of itself, I would call it polarizing for our group of thugs out here in the world. But at, from what I understand from everybody I know that the fifth element is a pretty polarizing film about its popularity. Uh, what other fingers of Besson are touching this here and how is it going to hit people? Do you think? Uh, fingers. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. I'm thinking of his fingers on the controls of the film. No, you know, I, I, the way I understand it, he's, he's, he is a pretty controlling guy when it comes to writing characters, but the way he talked about it in this, um, in, 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 a, in, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff is he says he's, he's really worked hard to open, to broaden his horizons on the creation of it. And so, you know, I, I, I think he is, should be lauded for his world building and, and, uh, the detail that goes into the, even the most ancillary characters, um, you know, his character Bibles are legendary and this one, he gave 10 pages per alien in the character Bible and there are 200 unique aliens and each alien not only has all of their sort of um, uh, biological, psychological detail in this character Bible, but they're mapped to a specific star in the known universe. So, wow. uh, so they know exactly where these characters, where these aliens came from when they came to Alpha. Are they uh, selling that? Uh, are they selling the Bible? That I don't know, but I do know that all these actors are, you know, were all the actors were required to study the complete Bible to understand wow. all the characters they're working with in each scene, and that Besson says he quizzed them as they came on to scene. You know, you're dealing with this particular character. Where did it come from? Well, it's a water character. What does it eat? You know, those sorts of things. Uh, so I, I think he is this this attention to detail is is absolutely on screen in the production design, even if it's not so apparent in the in the dialogue itself. I, I think this. The, the world building is on display in the big market sequence, um, you know, in spades, right? He, he actually says it was the, the most difficult scene to shoot uh, and direct conceptually because, you know, once you see it on screen, and I, I absolutely had a great experience with it. There was nothing in the big market sequence that didn't make sense to me visually. True. And, uh, he, but he said, you know, before we, before we did that, just looking at the paper of the script, it made no sense. And he had real trouble communicating what it was that he wanted to see on screen. So he took a bunch of a bunch of phones, mobile phones and, and little cameras and went over to a film school and he took 200 students and they went out and they shot the entire thing by hand. And then they put a bunch of sound and music to it and they handed it to Thierry Arbogast, the cinematographer, so he could make sense of it and, and say, oh, 
oh, I get it now. I get what you want to do. This is, I, I get it. It's a great story about how to shoot a cinematic and, and uh, um, you know, shows that sort of attention to detail to building this world that we've never seen before. And I, I think he is great at that. Well, and that's why I ask you if they're selling that script, the, the Bible, because it's like... It, <laughs> You'd it rather read me, that? <laughs> well, it reminds me of, what's the, I don't even remember what movie it's from, but the thing, the, the line, I play real sports, not trying to be the best at exercising, right? Like, he's doing a great job of making the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie <laughs> isn't so great, you know. Like, way to go! You're quizzing the actors on the Bible. That's so yeah. great. Are you gonna sell that? Is that is, is that revenue gonna help against the production? See, now, cost? I I was using that as a story to to support my support of Besson, and you just I, turned it right around. I man. think it's beautiful, but the, like in the like that's great. Like, I'm so glad that people are gonna listen to our show and hear about that. But you know, the the 16 million dollars that they made this weekend on it, it's not gonna report out for all that wonderful stuff that he did in the background well the, you know speaking of basalt what i mean the favorite my favorite films of his one of the dynamics that i always sort of enjoyed in his stories is you've got sort of the the older grizzled burnt out veteran whose life is redeemed by sort of this his interactions with this younger woman and it worked you know you've got that in fifth element and leon and to a certain extent in the femme nikita so i thought I could see hints of it there, but I would, I wanted Valerian to be older, you know, more experienced. And I, again, it looked like two kids Those sort of kids. On, on screen. So can you I, believe it, that Dane DeHaan is 31 years old? No, no, I can't. Like Cause he looks like, looking. yeah, exactly. And so that's where I, I would thought, okay, maybe that's what I was struggling with in terms of the relationship is I wanted him to be that 40 something older guy. That's got this history and, now he's willing to redeem himself, you know, and because I always get that out of the films of his that I enjoy. I like that journey that his male, you know, leads take. And here I don't have that. And I felt like it was like Vassan took what has worked for him and he took it out of this film. And I don't know if it's just dedication to the source material, but I thought that may have been the dynamic that was missing. But everything else about this just, yeah, it. It was the craziness and world building that I loved in the fifth element. He, you know, there's so much, you know, wackiness going on, but there's an internal logic to it that I'm just thrilled to go along with. And he always takes me along on those journeys. So, you know, that's, you know, I can see those elements and I love those components of this film. There is, we get to discover so many different parts of Alpha and we've got such great characters that we just, you know, Bob, the like submarine driver guy, <laughs> As, you know, you get these small pieces and you're like there, he, somehow he creates a character that you, there's a whole story there that he gets across about this guy. You want to know who this guy is. There's what is he doing? You know, they're not these throwaway sort of generic characters. There's something interesting. And I guess that's all that work he does in the Bible for those characters makes it a rich environment, but if we don't have a, a good story to connect it all together, to me, it's, you know, work in vain in a certain aspect because they're not there to support the strong story. And I, I would rather have that, but I will take the entertaining world sort of as a consolation prize and, yeah. and enjoy that. That's Bob should have been your Ruby Rod. Bob should have been the Ruby yeah. Rod. That's yes. exactly right. And there, there were a lot of opportunities for a Ruby Rod character to yeah. come out, and they just never quite played out. But I, I have a thought experiment that I would like to run by you both. Okay. And just see what you... And this is ever since I, I, I saw that great uh, Nerdwriter video where he, he talks about, um, you know, recutting passengers and 
starting with yeah. the second act and then going to the first act changes the whole movie. Here sure. you go. Okay. This is a casting change, and I want I would love to know what you think okay. uh, about how the film changes. Yep. Let's just swap. Just go ahead and swap. Uh, Dane DeHane and Clive Owen. Okay. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Dane DeHane is such a great creepy soldier guy. Yep mindless kind of you know he would totally have done that and clive owen is the grizzled uh great Mm -hmm. accent uh he would have been a a a valerian that i would love to have connected with now i recognize that i'm you know i'm older and my kids love the movie as it is oh so i mean they adored it like they they were ready to see it again yeah oh really mine immediately oh mine were like yeah it was it was fun i said would you watch it again well yeah, maybe if it was on Netflix, since it's like free, then yeah, I'd probably maybe watch it again. They loved it. That's yeah. interesting. No, okay. it was a ride. I mean, it was a ride. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but thought no, that's a, that, no, that is because I think it fits in with the story of if you have the younger general who makes that rash decision in combat and then tries to cover over, you know, the consequences for the fur, you know, to further his career versus the yeah, brilliant. Yep. Let's do it. Let's, Let's recut do it. it. Yeah. Well. And that, I mean, if we if we jump to casting, I think we can talk about the fact that these actors weren't necessarily placed in the types of roles that were set up for them to succeed. I mean, that's the the essence of the thought experiment that you just gave us, right, Pete? Uh, when we first see Loreline, I was imagining her as like a sort of uh, a Katniss or like a Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica, right? Oh, Starbuck! And, and now what Starbuck, a great comparison. Well, and honestly, through through BSG, I never really believed that Starbuck was as tough because of that actress. But that's what I was hoping for Loreline here because she seemed to carry that really well. You know, the the hard parts of Jennifer Lawrence she nailed. But then when the role called for a little bit more depth and a little bit of softness and talking about falling in love and and all of a sudden this emotional thing that's where the lack of chemistry and and pete used the word charisma before i just i never saw it between the two of them because i felt like they were much better at doing the hard parts and i don't mean hard saying difficult the hard you know the sort of uh, the rough warrior soldier pieces than they were about the softness necessary for the relationship how did you guys feel about dane and kara pulling that off well, first I have to say, are you telling me that Katie Sackhoff was not strong in Battlestar Galactica because I we're going to have words? Her. I never believed it. Are you it. kidding me? I never believed it. I'm you just, just broke something in the world. I don't know what it is. <laughs> something just broke. There's a great disturbance in the floor. <laughs> I, I, I believe that because, again, because I believe that Kara was going to be badass throughout this whole thing. And she wasn't. And she wasn't expected to be. They needed her to do something else. So I would have appreciated this sort of callousness to the Starbuck role. Um, and maybe we could switch acting in a thought exercise that way. I don't know. I, you know, I, uh, going back to, uh, I, can't, I can't even talk about Katie Sackhoff with you anymore. I'm, I have to put that, put that to bed for in favor of our relationship ongoing. Uh, and, and I think Kara, I, I struggle a little bit with, with Kara and, and I, I do like her, but I think it's because, um, you know, I, I, feel like I sort of discovered her in Paper Towns, which I adored. I thought was I thought she did a, a really terrific job. I, I haven't seen Tulip Fever. And so the the rest of the films that I've seen her in, Suicide Squad, Pan, uh, they also were not great films to showcase what she is capable of. 
Uh, and so I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit of an apologist here, too, because I think she is capable of more, but I didn't really buy it here. Yeah, she yeah she gets put in a weird role because it, it's just it's like they couldn't settle on sort of the relationship like in big market it's like okay he's told it's clear like yeah he's like the rebel because it's like yeah he didn't he doesn't read the memo yeah 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 I know what I'm doing when they put the dimensional hypercube thing on his arm it's like okay you push this button here and then when you come back you push this his box you know malfunctions he, she's trying to fix it he's shooting things off so it's clearly like to me that's the dynamic of like yeah i'm i'm han solo i fly by the seat of my pants and i sometimes get in over my head and she's like the smart one who's get always you know bailing him out all the time but that's then, what i wanted too steve right. i wanted han solo and princess leia then, and emperor strikes back right but then or, it turns it turns into like he's, wash and zoe from yeah. firefly right yeah. Like, yeah. these are all the things I just. I, yeah. But it turns out, you know, he's, it's always this, like, he's pulling rank on her thing, which became like this, you know, he's ordering her around. So he's the one that's in charge. But, and she, you know, concedes to that, you know, except for the one point where he tells her to go back to get reinforcements. And she's like, no, I'm doing it this time. But it talk just, about an unbelievable. You can't. We got. We can't let. I'm sorry, Steve. You, you're on. A, yeah. You're on a roll. But we gotta hang. You know, hang a flag on that. It was terrible. Yes. Go back and get back up, and then no. And then she turns around and waits for him too. By right. The way. It's, it's so stupid. If backup is needed, someone should go get backup. Yes. Exactly. No matter what, he should have gone to get backup to pay that off. And, yes. And yeah. There's more story when he goes to get back up. Instead, they just, ah, they let it linger, uh, you know, as this really uncomfortable moment where she now is confirmed that she is totally useless. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she, and the character is really just created as an accessory to yeah, Valerian. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's, I think that's the, the problem is she's this accessory that's going to fit whatever the story needs at that point. So That's she becomes ter- this u- terribly u- important. utility tool of like, okay, we need this. She needs to be this foil for him. She needs to serve this function in the plot. She's got to save him when he gets, you know, dragged off into the red zone. So she's got to save him, but then he's got to turn around and save her before her, you know, lobotomy dessert, you know, scene. Um, you know, it's tough for me. Yeah. It's so who's, who's the competent one? Who's the one that's really in charge of things. And it's just not clear. And so it's, it's challenging, I think, in terms of the not just the casting, but what they were given to do. And I, again, feel that there's potential in these actors that I've seen them do more. They weren't given enough to do. And I it's and I another part is I don't know how much of it is just the strain on an actor having to spend so much time like on blue screen sets where so much of it is reacting to things that aren't there. And, and what that can do to their their performance of where do you go? Well, and that's to your point specifically, Steve. I mean, they, Delavine said, you know, of the six months that she was involved in shooting, she spent two weeks on a proper set. Wow. That is a lot of blue screen time. Yeah. This is really a cartoon. Yes, exactly. And that's, well, and that's interesting for the whole thing. I mean, it, you you get you talk about the whether the characters were supposed to be competent or incompetent and throughout the story this and this goes back to the script but there was this uh, supposed to be an assumption of competence and then situational incompetence to move the story along and that just it it failed both characters and i can't uh, i can't imagine what a challenge that is for those actors to try and pull that off 
Yeah, and I have to imagine that the integrity of the character as they are performing is is such that you know I, I how how can you possibly be in the situation and not believe that you're missing some incredible intentional layups like the the emotional layups the payoff of the relationship like while you're performing these characters can't I do X to resolve this because people are gonna know and uh, and, and that was certainly the trouble I had with it so we mentioned Clive Owen already. Um, he was, I mean, he still was Clive Owen, right? He was, he was wonderful in what he did. <laughs> I, I regret that they gave him a, you can't handle the truth moment. Yeah. I thought that was a yeah. bit, um, played, uh, the, his final uh, sequence. We don't see much of him through, through the course of the movie. He's taken, he's mummified in the blue goo and yeah. he's taken away. <laughs> he's the big and blue MacGuffin for this He whole is the thing. big blue MacGuffin of the whole thing. And that is to, 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 to the discredited film, such. underusing Clive Owen. <laughs> that oh. was sarcasm. Yes. Uh, so other folks uh, getting right into the stunt casting. What about Rihanna? So, <laughs> so watching this, the movie? <laughs> that, my wife just leaned over me and she's like, why is this here? Why is this even necessary? And I'm thinking, is it supposed to be, you know, Valerian's struggle with his, you know, his, his past with women? Is this a temptation for him that he's going to rise above that? Maybe, but I don't get that. And then is it to introduce a, you know, clearly a character that he's going to need for his next steps, but then clearly then the, st- <laughs> it was horrible. We get through the big fat battle. They fall out of the garbage pit and it's like, she's struggling. She's like, Oh, I must've been wounded in the fight. And <laughs> Maybe. It's like, really? You, you don't know. And then you're going to disintegrate into sand because clearly, okay. Sir, purpose served. We don't know what else to do with you. You're dead. So we, we can move on with the story. It was <laughs> this is horrible. all as opposed to oh no, I must have been wounded on the stripper pole. <laughs> right. Somewhere between the stripper pole and the yeah. street, I must have been wounded. <laughs> oh dear. I mean, How will is, I ever figure? Yeah. I guess we'll never know. Right. I uh, uh, well, it, it, she really didn't do a whole lot when it comes to the actual heavy lifting of the role because uh, you know my thought coming into the movie that was she was going to serve. A musical purpose similar to right. the aria in Fifth Element. Oh, I sure. just assumed that, that this great. was that would have been part very of the cool. best song yeah. thing. But she didn't actually do the pole dancing. They had a pole dancer in for that, and then uh, she was the voice when it was when she was no longer Rihanna, but not. I mean, it just was really odd. I, I, I like Rihanna, but this it was it seemed very strange that she was in this movie. Yeah, it, it was another visual excuse, right, to have a familiar face and showcase some incredible motion capture stuff. I sure. mean, that's that's really what again, as most of the movie is an excuse to showcase incredible motion capture stuff, which was, which was really great. Credit to Claire Tran who played Bubble when it wasn't uh, Rihanna shaped, and uh, <laughs> I, I thought she did a, a really fine job. What, what, which part? was that uh claire anytime you didn't see bubble as the the shape she was claire tran was doing the motion control of that character oh so the oh, blue blob okay gotcha yeah. sorry yeah <laughs> i was like <laughs> i was trying to understand how claire was the blue <laughs> blob that makes sense um other folks that came up uh as surprising familiar faces it's good that you bring it up that way uh we had ethan hawk as ethan hawk is at this point what isn't he in yeah. Right. Uh, if there's going to be a surprise cast, it's probably Ethan Hawke. So you know, <laughs> there was actually an audible like cheer when he showed yes. up in the movie. Oh, finally, in my yeah. theater. Oh, okay. He's a fan favorite, I think. Yeah. Oh, he was great though too. I mean, yeah. I really enjoyed him as thing. Jolly the Pimp. Yeah. He was really fine. <laughs> oh, he was funny. Name. 
<laughs> Jolly the pimp. Uh, also, we had uh, Herbie Hancock as a defense minister. I, I again, it, the purpose, it must be for a familiar face, right? Is that what we're saying in these things? Although, Stunt is casting? that really, I mean, do you think Herbie Hancock is used as familiar face? No, because I saw the name as in the a credits. Musician? Yeah, I Probably saw his name in the not. credits and thought he was yeah. going to play, like, and again, there would be a musical number with him. So, yeah, it, it caught me off guard. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think it was a familiar face. I think this was probably a friend. And just like Louis Leteria, who was the uh, the captain welcoming the Mercuries in the opening sequence. And okay. uh, Leteria's director of Now You See Me and The Incredible Hulk and Transporter and Clash. The, I mean, he's a, he's a director and he's a sure. friend of and and got got the a brief role there. I, uh, you know, I thought that was. We have that. Uh, and then you have Rucker Hauer who shows up at the, you know, for an instant at the beginning. And then so clearly the John Goodman voice of the. The job of the hut impersonator so it would have been better if we had the the simon Pegg in star wars moment right you know where it was oh my god i had yeah. no idea that was him that was amazing uh and in, in this case i knew it was john goodman right away i happened to really like john goodman so it was fine but i i like the surprise sure i agree with that i you know We've talked about the conflicted nature that we have about this. I think from a production standpoint, it all sounds like we're all pretty positive. Yeah, where you're like, you want to put this on, you know, like, and watch, there's there's just beautiful sections to watch again. You know, like, I would love to watch the whole big market piece again, because it's such like a mind-bendy, trippy thing to think about. And just the way it's, they, the choices that were made of when you've got, characters in different dimensions and how they can and can interact with each other and how they're visually presented on the screen, I thought was really clever, done really well. I love that piece to it. There's big chunks of, of alpha that I think just come together so well. And it's like, I want to like greatest hits clips, you know, out of this movie just to like watch in awe of all, all these pieces come together. Yeah, well, and I, I would definitely wait in line at Bisson Land for oh, my 3D oh, yes. big market adventure. <laughs> oh yes. I think there's at least oh, five or six rides that in this is movie <laughs> that I would take my fast pass and gladly oh, <laughs> jump to the front of. Yes. That that becomes a really creepy um, Bisson Land. <laughs> yes. I, that's a really creepy place. Well... <laughs> There's some fun things we can do yeah. with that, maybe. Yeah. I want to go free diving in the big blue world. I can't yes, wait. And it's, and Hold it's, your breath, kids. JJ, it's not a fast pass. It's a multi-pass. Multi-pass. <laughs> there we go. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy. That's, that's so oh, much smarter than what I said. That is so good. Um, yeah. I, no, I'm with you. I mean, this is a, the, the fifth element really defined a, uh, a generation of uh, AV nerds toolkits, right? When you start... The, the DVD helped you tune your home theater system, yeah. right? The, the sound was incredible. The color was incredible. It was just an incredible production. And I think, you know, more than a film about, uh, you know, what's on screen, this is about creating a, uh, a, a legacy disc that's appropriate for the next generation of home theater nerds. You know, I, I think this is... Um, uh, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. How much of that do you think had to do with uh, cinematography? Uh, it's really tough in a film like this to think about camera versus 
computer. Yeah, no, you know, I actually think it's it it has uh, a lot to do with it. I I really love watching the way uh, the way Arborgast and team work with the camera and blue screen, and and you know, it's it's of note that the Fifth Element had included you know two hundred VFX shots, and as as Besson says, it's he he thinks it was the last traditional uh, tools sci-fi film really i mean that that sure. uh, you know was was crafted not on blue screen and motion control and this has 2734 vfx shots uh, in in valerian that's a that's a, a significant increase and so to watch him make this it's just like any other that was sort of pioneered through um you know these these other huge films avatar and star wars and all these things but to watch the camera shooting in 3d space and and to have besson be able to actually see where the camera is and where the camera moves and how it's interacting with the actors even though the actors can't see what they're interacting with is it it it's one of those dynamics of filmmaking that is is a dramatic revision of of what they're used to. And I think to, to Arbogast's credit, um, you know, being able to work in that space, um, is, is an enormous conceptual challenge. Like I, 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 I struggle with interpreting how to set up a shot in, in that universe. Well, and coincidentally, so, it's actually the big market effect in real life. Right? Yeah. I right. mean, you're actually asking, and that's why the, the big market sequence here, I think, is potentially really profound because it's taking what actors are doing on a regular basis with these visual effects movies now and interacting with an, another dimension, right, from the blue screen. So it's now putting that on screen as part of life imitating art imitating life, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a special thing. And I agree with you. I think from a cinematography standpoint, from a, 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 a cinematographer's mind having to really envision where the camera is set to capture reactions to fakeness, I think that's something that requires other dimensional thinking. So speaking speaking of camera placement, there was one cam there was one shot that just totally pulled me out of the movie, and I just thought that's a really weird choice, and it just caught me completely off guard. It's when they're going to get the whatever neuro neurological jellyfish, and they're in Bob, they're they're in Bob's <laughs> ship or whatever, and they snatch right. the jellyfish, and then the big thing is coming after him, and the, the ship is getting knocked around, and there's a shot where. Lorleen gets like, yeah. yeah, she gets thrown out I of her seat. Now. And then it's a shot from like a security camera footage. It's all black and white and grainy showing her getting like flung out of her seat. And then, you know, she gets back in her seat and Bob tells her, yeah, see, I told you to put your seatbelt on. It's like, it's like a three second shot or something. And it's only that camera angle, that type is only used once. We don't, throughout all of Alpha, we're not using like seeing it from the perspective of security cameras or anything. I thought, Why? We've got if we if we have virtual sets, none of this is real. Why limit us to showing it like that? Wh who? What? Yeah, what's my point the of GoPro. view? Yeah, right. They must they have just, had to do it or because there felt, was nothing else. Yeah, or felt that they had to do it. So there must be some practical reason why they had to use it, or for story purposes, they felt they had to. You know, because the camera was set back, and none of those other shots in that uh, vessel were from the back. So there must be a reason from it that, that we won't necessarily know. That's right. And because you have no sense of space without Ever. that shot. You have no sense of what the entire capsule looks like. And did you notice, so now there, there was a bunch of ADR in place, oh, in a yeah. lot of places. Did yeah. you see the ADR with the jellyfish in particular? They took out her swearing, and she didn't really swear. I mean, she said ass. But the, but the joke, it, it really was a joke line, which she said, uh, put my head up this thing's ass, yeah. right? But she changed it and said, put my head 
had in its body right. to ADR, yes. which yes. was really sloppy ADR. And there were a couple times in the why, film where why they was did that, that necessary again? You know, are I they don't... working with rating? I mean, what rating? It was a it was a PG thirteen. Yeah, you can. That's nothing, right? Right. I want to jump going with the effects, talking about 3D, right? So I had mentioned in our Slack channel before before we saw the, the film why anyone would try to see this without 3D because my thought going in was that it was going to be this 3D extravaganza. I didn't feel that way with what I saw here. And specifically really? in the scheduling, there are far less 3D versions available to see than there are non-3D versions. For example, in my local theater, it had a full run of non-3D versions and only two in 3D. In the course of one day, what were there any effects that really felt strong for you in a 3D aspect for this movie? Well, for me, it's all about the the expanse of space and anywhere you have shots and you have stars and ships and planets on multiple planes in space. That's kind of a a a go to test for good 3D. Uh, And and I felt like this this hit the Avatar mark for me in that regard. Like I I felt like you I like the stars were floating near me in a way that that you know when I was looking at the screen I was looking into space right and and I thought that was really uh, lovely and and. To his credit, I mean, he he uh, Besson says, you know, the the best 3D that he'd ever seen was Avatar, and that's actually what caused him to to pause and not make a bunch of 3D movies. Like his work just oh. didn't really didn't oh, really lend itself okay, to sure. the, the the Avatar-ness of 3D until now. And uh, I thought I thought it was uh, I thought it was terrific. The big market was was great 3D for me. Well, that's so that's interesting because I didn't find the sort of relevance for a 3D film here that I was expecting. And I've recently turned the corner on 3D, specifically coming off of Doctor Strange, which I thought was the best oh, use of 3D yeah. that I've seen yeah, it was excellent. as of yet. And this just felt like more of the same to me. And I really, I, I think my expectations here were too high because I really expected to be blown away by it. It felt like a very normal movie experience for me. And now, Steve, you said you didn't see it in 3D. No, just not regular, you know, 2D. And how did you feel about that? Were there any scenes where you saw them and you said, oh, wow, I'd like to see that in 3D? You know, I thought perhaps, you know, Valerian sort of when he's, you know, charging through the walls, you know, the way that was shot of sort of that progression through the the depths. And then perhaps maybe when he's uh, falling, you know, trying to catch the butterfly, you know, lures that there might be some interesting depth there but it wasn't anything that i thought wow i'm missing out on something that there's a you know dimension that was adding some something to the story that was going to make this sequence even more so um because it's sort of like already ramped up to 10 in just visual stimulus so i didn't know that the 3d would take it up to a level where i would say wow this is going to be really immersive i i would be interested to see what what the big market piece looks like uh but for me that's something where i would personally i'd like to see them do something interesting with when they're sort of in the desert reality that it would be 2d and then when he's in his interdimensionality that it would be 3d to to have somebody play with format that way where we're shifting between 2d and 3d between two different realities but we're not there yet yeah well that's that's good to hear i guess from the 2d perspective i again i whenever i get a choice i always see something in 2d it's just with this one my expectations were a little high oh sure uh we talked a bit about sound uh, as well is there should we bring up things about editing music uh sound what kind of things were positive for you guys in those respects you know it's interesting about the score um i uh, i actually am a, a fan of Displot's work, but uh, I didn't really think much about it. And the first comment out of my daughter's mouth was, I really like the score. Okay. 
Do you guys have a sense memory of the score that I missed? I noticed no. it at times, especially yeah. with the space fights. But that being said, I don't remember themes. So I, I need to go back and actually listen to it and give it some time. Because Speaking, uh, speaking yeah. of space fights, now that you mentioned that, did that seem like ridiculously long? Like at the end when we're getting like the story again of when the planet's destroyed from sort of the Clive Owen character's point of view, it's it's not just like, oh, we get a flash of like, this is what happened. It was like, it felt like five or six minutes of just flying around ships shooting each other, which we already knew was happening. And to me, it just felt like, well, we're going to give them space battle. So let's give them a five minute space battle sequence. Well, that's about as long as it takes for you to complete the ride. So oh, okay. Thank um, you. That's, that's why. No, I, that, you're right. your point, okay. your, your question's valid because I felt like that in a lot of sequences. I actually felt that the, the early sequence when they showed the planet the first time, when they were giving us the background of, of that story was just too long. I, I get why it's important. And I thought lots of it was really great, but in general, most of the things when they were uh, doing story uh, exposition through visual storytelling, I felt that it was a little indulgent and long. I, I think that you say the same thing about the entire film. I mean, coming in at 137 minutes, Whoa. it was a long movie. And um, I, I, I think it was probably about a half hour, maybe more over long. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was like one and a half Dunkirks. <laughs> <laughs> um, other stuff, I, I felt that the relationship dynamics, the gender dynamics between the two were pretty traditional. Um, and I think that goes back to my earlier point about wanting a more tough uh, Loreline here did uh, now you guys said both your daughters saw the movie right yeah and did they, they bring like, up anything about that no like I said they were like yeah it was fun but it but it didn't really engage them that much there's they weren't really talking about it that much there was nothing yeah I don't think this is a, a character where they're like well this is a really neat role model for me or anything it was just yeah they sort of walked away indifferent hmm. I uh, she did not have my daughter did not have any comment on the um, the relationship between Kara and Dane, but it, maybe this is a sign about how anemic that relationship was. Uh, during the stripper pole scene, uh-huh. uh, she did look at me and she says, "Wow, she's strong. I want to be like her." Oh. And <laughs> That's I what literally a dad wants to I hear. clutched my heart <laughs> and sunk down in my seat. Now I know I have to know in my heart of hearts that she did not mean what she actually said. Right. And we'll be having that conversation later. But you know, to credit uh, that that is a very physical endeavor, so to yes. speak, and requires a great deal of core strength. And how can I not be uh, enthusiastic uh, about physical fitness? Uh, that's just... a rhetorical question, right? Because I can't. <laughs> How you could not be excited about that exactly. in lots of different ways. Exactly. Okay. Well, specifically, so I wanted to ask if it's kid-friendly because, so for the show, we're watching it for the show this weekend, and my seven-year-old, and it, always with my seven-year-old, my five-year-old wants to do it too, it, it, I was a little bit concerned with that scene in particular, um, but it, I want to get your guys' take on it because your kids are obviously older. Outside of that, too, I felt like there's a lot of parts in the story where my kids are going to turn to me as a five and seven year old and ask me why things are happening. Yeah, there's a oh, lot yeah. of things which, yeah. as a as a moviegoer, I don't have a problem with because I I don't want it to be spoon fed for me. But for kids of a certain age, they're going to ask why is why is the planet, why are the things falling out of the sky? Things like that. And right. it doesn't explain yeah. that to you. How do you guys feel that it'll hit with younger 
kids. Well, I don't think it was. I don't think it's a younger kid movie. No, I mean, I I, I felt so. like I was on the fence with my twelve year old, and I'm I'm not. Uh, it was no problem for him, but under eleven, ten, I think it's probably not appropriate. I would have definitely second guessed that. That's a really hard thing for us to do in today's climate because PG thirteen is a crazy rating. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it could mean all it's different ridiculous. kinds of things. Yeah. And outside of that, like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, there's a lot of innuendo in them, but we feel completely comfortable showing those movies to the boys. Interesting. And, and I'm and it, I, I I'm they love them, right? So now they see Valerian, they see a trailer for Valerian and something and you see these two characters who are clearly uh, cast as preteens even though they're 31 and 28 <laughs> or something. Yeah. But uh you know they want to see it. So I don't know. I I'm I'm going both ways about it. Well, maybe that's a, you know, wait to for rental so you've got an opportunity to just pause and say okay, well, you're going to find out or, you know, because, yeah, at first, even I, you know, when we're on, you know, Planet Mule and all of a sudden the sky is dark and stuff starts falling out, I'm like, okay, is this a meteor shower? Yeah, what are these or things? An and then it's like, or, or an invasion. And then it's like, we see like, you know, a ship come barreling through and it's like, okay, well, that's debris from a ship. Then I'm like, oh, okay, this is debris raining down on the planet from this battle. Okay. And then we see the big ship come down. But yeah, there's, there's that there. I mean, even all of the sort of rituals or ceremonies or whatever that's going on in Mule because you have pretty much no dialogue or well, no English dialogue to explain what the heck is going on with these little pearls and the weird, you know, rat that, you know, spews them out. Yeah. There's a lot of strange things that I think can, you know, for little kids, they're like, they were going to want to know why, because it is spending so much time there. So to me, that's more of a home rental pause have a conversation and, and move forward. And that gives you the opportunity to blow past things that, you know, maybe you're like, Oh, well then he goes into paradise Grove and yeah, he's going to come out with this shapeshifter. You don't need to see all this dancing. Right. That's for girls. They, you don't want to watch, you don't want to watch her dancing. Let's go get our popcorn. That, 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 yeah. Daddy watches that again later. You can, you don't <laughs> see that now. Uh, we talked a little bit about the numbers on it. Uh, it. You know, it's it's doing terrible here. You said the 26th in Western Europe, Pete. Is that right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. It's there over the next, like, four, you know, four or five weeks into the middle of September. It's it's going to open throughout Western Europe. And- so I would say there's going to be a lot of fake news about how well this movie's doing over the next couple weeks until we find out really how it hits in Europe, which I think is where it's uh, definitely going to hit. Now it's time to rank it. Because we like ranking things here. We don't have a song with Tommy tonight. But if you folks out there in the world haven't done so yet, you should check out www.flickchart.com. It's one of my favorite websites in the world. It provides a fun way to look at the movies that you love and hate, whether you feel that way about it, by creating this kind of tournament-style stack ranking system. On this show and on all the next real shows, we go through the exercise here so that you can find the special stack rankings that we have uh, for our show here. And you can find our flick chart at flickchart.com slash TNR Filmboard. Pete! Up first, we've got Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets versus Alien Covenant. Oh, wow. I hope you guys can agree on this one. Valerian? <laughs> I will watch. Val- I will watch Valerian again. Be- I will watch it for big market and and fun because I'll I'll default to doesn't make me angry the way Covenant did in some aspects. Because I, I was going to guess that you guys would say Valerian on this. one. I actually uh, I'm I'm going to say Covenant on this. One. Oh really? Okay. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I think you should put it for Valerian then. No, you're a, no. you're a Valerian, but I haven't seen Alien Covenant. Oh, oh, oh. That's my assumption. That's wow. My oh. oh, oh, then your vote, vote is null oh, and void. Your vote doesn't yeah. count. Remember, I have seen none of the Alien movies. Oh no, oh, I'm. Right. I, I, it would be a principled win on either one of these. So let's let's Rochambeau. do it, Steve. Yeah. Are you, are you ready? Okay. All right. All right. One, one two, two, three. three rock. I am crushed. Valerian crush, crush. Valerian it is. Okay. Next up, we have Valerian versus Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. apes. Oh, apes. Easily. Yeah, it's yes. apes. Hands down. Uh, Valerian versus Jurassic World. Jurassic World. Jurassic World. Yes. I'm Jurassic World as well. Although the poster that came up on Flickchart is the three little duck monkeys, the oh. duck monkey bats. Oh, I like them. Yeah, they we didn't talk fun. about those characters. No. They were fun. Yeah, I like them. Uh, Valerian versus the mummy. Oh, this is a good one. Um, I'm actually going to pick Valerian. Yeah, I'm Valerian too on this one. Yeah, yeah. Valerian versus Avengers Age of Ultron. 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 Valerian versus Snowden. 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 Valerian. Snowden it is. Congratulations, gentlemen, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets is now number 26. Out of? Right between The Mummy and Snowden. And that is out of 60. So it be it's in the top okay. half. That's yep. interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that, you know that first that first pick we had to we had to go to the mattresses on it. So it, it could have easily gone the other way. <laughs> on the letterboxed ranking, out of five stars, I give it two. I feel like I was coming into the show tonight at a three. Yeah. I'm gonna knock it down to a two and, two a, and half. a half. I, I found myself getting pretty angsty over the the terribleness of the script. No, and I, it's funny because that's exactly where I am. I was I came in I think thinking three, but. Yeah, I'm yeah two and a half. So so that's uh, quick math or not quick math to say two point five, two point five, and two. Are we so, gonna do we round up to two point five? Is that how we're gonna sure, do? Sure, why not? That's clever, right in the middle. And is that a, wait a minute? Is that a heart or a no heart? Oh, that's right. We have to say heart or no heart. For me, yeah. it's a no heart. I do not like this movie. I like it because I I don't hate it. To me, a not <laughs> like it signifies like disdain for this movie, and I I don't have that. It's it's fun. It's flawed. I'd like. I'm I'm definitely a heart. I think there's a lot to be I mean in terms of just straight up craft of the 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 production itself putting the visuals on screen. Uh there's a lot to be proud of in this movie. I'm I'm definitely a heart even you know and I'll see it again. I'm it didn't make me angry. Sounds like a James Cameron movie to me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay, uh, what's next? Where do we go from here? Next month, the film board is going to tackle another adaptation with Stephen King's The Dark Tower. And both you guys are out for that one, right? Why are you laughing? <laughs> because I'm thankful to not be on that Why? One. What, wait, wait, wait. Talk about that. What, so you, you're thankful to not be on that because? Because it's going to be a hot mess. <laughs> that, that movie is a hot I, mess I, with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey. No, 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 no. no because Doll it's... dang it. No, it's... There's su- there's such anticipation and expectation of that, and That's I'm, me. I'm yeah, and I also remember you had such hope and high expectations when we went and saw Ghost in the Shell, and yeah, we saw how saw how you felt about that one. No, it comes down to I think tackling something that's so big that should be a basically a, a mini series, and then some of the people involved with it have just disappointed me so much with their ability to adapt things that I know this movie is just going to make me angry. I haven't even read the dark tower stuff, but I just have such respect for Stephen King that I think that this is going to just be another one of those. You're right. You I, know, I, I have to see it. 
I have to see it, sure, but I'm terrified ahead. that yeah. it's going to be you, terrible. I, I think rightfully so, JJ. Yeah. I, I all, I'm with Steve. It's going to be a dumpster fire. I, I, I really think, <laughs> and and I actually, uh, I, I, I also uh, really love Stephen King's work. And I, the the Dark Tower was damn near impenetrable for me. I, hmm. It took me months and months to read that book. I haven't read any of the other ones oh. because it was such a, it was just not an enjoyable experience yeah. for me. And uh, and so I know I'm a rarity. I, the people that I meet and we talk about the Dark, Dark Tower, I'm, the, and you're one of them. I'm <laughs> the guy who doesn't get it. I, I get that. But, uh, you know, taking that experience and making it a movie is, is I, I think that's a... Well, and talking about you guys coming down, that means we're going to have Andy and Tommy ne- next month. And it's interesting because they probably were the most adamantly against Valerian. So it's going to be interesting yeah, right. to see oh, how yeah. the tone <laughs> of their conversation next month yes. differs from our tone this month. I'm going to be the one constant. So hopefully we'll see how my expectations for the Dark Tower comes through. Pete, uh, on the weekly show, you guys are just coming back, right? We are. Uh, we've taken uh, July off um, from our show, and we're coming back out of our hiatus. And our first show back will be episode, I can't believe I'm saying this, 400. Woo. And uh, in, in honor of, not really in honor of, this is complete coincidence. For fun. Yeah, for episode 400, uh, we'll begin our 13-episode Star Trek series with Star Trek, the motion picture. So uh, that's one of those series that I I think it's one of those when people, when we tell people about the show that uh, they always say, oh, you know, how do you feel about Star Trek? We've never done a Star Trek movie on the show. So it's about time. And you can do them all, right? All in a row. So shouldn't it just be episode 400 is 13 hours long to talk about, you know, and it's like episode 400, part A, part B, part C. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, uh, we'll release Star Trek as a separate series too. So you can just listen to it. You can binge it. You guys mentioned uh, Dunkirk. I'm going to go see, I think back to back, I'm going to see Spider-Man Homecoming and Dunkirk this weekend. Both of those films I was not excited to see, uh, but because of all the hype, everybody's got me up to go see them now. You guys have seen them, right? I have not seen Dunkirk yet. I haven't yet. seen Dunkirk. I no. Okay. Spider Man is fun. Seen them. No, uh, I still don't know if I will. I do. If you if you want to cram something else in there, go see War for the Planet of the Apes. Though uh, I, that's it's a video. Su- movie oh, for it's me, such I think. a good finish to that trilogy. I, yeah. It just works so well. I, and and Spider Man, I got I adored Spider Man. Oh, I had a blast, so and Tom fun. Holland is fantastic. Yes. But but if you once you see that movie, if you did not know much of Tom Holland, yeah. if you weren't a big Billy Elliot fan, right. uh, go search for the Zendaya Tom Holland uh, uh, lip sync battle on YouTube. Okay, okay. The, uh, like this is the LL Cool like J show. That five, yeah, it's okay. like five minutes. Uh, please watch that. I I present that to you here without uh, additional comment. Okay. Uh, I will comment on the Slack channel when I watch it because I got to see the movie first and then we'll do it. But the good, right. the point about all that is that there's amazing summer stuff out there for everyone to go see. And we are not even done with releases for this year. So we'll see some more adaptation fun <laughs> next month. Uh, so I'm out there doing that tomorrow. So uh, you guys have a fantastic night. Peter Wright, good night. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. See you later. Steve Sarmento. Yeah, talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Film Board tonight. Remember, you can hang out with us on the interwebs by joining up as a patron on patreon.com slash the next reel. If not, that's okay, but consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. Those things help make us more and more visible to the people who haven't yet heard of us. Because when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. 
Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well.